twice, I've set out to talk with John Cobb from the US-based Living Earth Movement, and twice the conversation has come to an abrupt end with a technical failure. My problem, or at John's end, I don't know. But at the end of the conversation, Climate Conversation thought it was worthwhile talking with the Living Earth Movement, and so John Cobb, because just like many other movements around the world, they are concerned about the climate crisis. Now we'll have some formalities, and then we'll have a listen to what John said in this second but shortened conversation. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Climate Conversations is proudly associated with the Mark Spencer published Climaxi Collective, a collective of more than 20 podcasts that cover the climate crisis from almost every angle. Music for this podcast comes from Music for a Warming World, and you'll find a link for that Melbourne-based group in the show notes. The climate crisis is growing worse every day, and so it needs our attention, and I urge you to pay attention to this podcast. Should you enjoy this episode, please feel free to share with your friends. John, the Living Earth Movement has some religious overtones, or it has that sense to me, so why do I feel that? Oh, well, I'm a very... Of a devoted disciple of Jesus is the way I would describe myself. And whether that's religious or not is entirely up to other people to decide. Okay, so does that filter through the organization, though? No, there is, uh, there's no organization of that kind. I, I'm a, I attend the Methodist Church every Sunday morning, and I'm an ordained Methodist minister. So there's no you don't force your your views upon the organ upon the organisation as such. So. Uh, actually, the Methodist Church is really not doing much forcing. It's just trying to survive at the edge. <laughs> <laughs> John, can you explain to me the hierarchy of the Living Earth Movement? How does it all work? Uh, ex- explain how a religious movement works. No, no. How, how does the Living Earth Movement work? Like, what's the hierarchy of the Living Earth Movement? Oh, oh, the Living Earth Movement. Yes, of course. Well, we think that there is a that there are millions of people in the world who are really deeply pained by the fact that the living system on the planet is decaying so rapidly. They don't want a dead planet. And, um, of course, many of them don't do anything about their concerns, but I think there are many who, in one way or another, are really doing what they can. So that's the movement, but it has no um, coherence. It's not organized. There are lots of... um, uh, NGOs that I would say are working in one way or another for a living earth, but just having a lot of separate institutions doesn't make for an effective movement. 
So our little group is not the movement, <laughs> but our little group is hoping that it can stimulate the people who are in the movement to want to work together because only in that way do we have a chance, just as it's very important. So is the Living Earth Movement a US-only organization or does it have international reach? Well, it's, it's basically a, a US movement. There have been people from other countries who are somewhat involved. Right at the moment, we are somewhat involved with, um, oh my, <laughs> this is a real problem, Vandana, Vandana Shiva. But, but that doesn't mean she is a member of our little organization. Let's talk about a, a sort of a, a contemporary issue for the moment. Do the shootings at the Texas school have some sort of other product of the issues that concern the Living Earth Movement? Well, of course, a Living Earth Movement certainly includes living people and wants very much to discourage a situation in which people don't feel this safe even in a school. And it's, so obviously it's against that kind of shooting, but there are our distinctive role is not to deal with specific American problems like too much accessibility to high-powered weapons on the part of immature people. So we don't, I mean, that is not one of the things that we focus on. We certainly approve of other people focusing on them. Can the, can the many troubles the Earth faces be traced back to one single issue, or is it a combination of many things? It's a combination of many things, but um, for the moment, just to to indicate my sense of um, uh, focus, uh, I think that the at the fact that our president is announcing to the world that if um, China invades Taiwan, we will go to war with China, is, uh, is an expression of just what is wrong with the present situation. China has no intention of invading Taiwan, but um, our government wants to persuade the people of Taiwan that there is real danger of this happening in the imminent future so that they will look to the United States for protection. And if Taiwan defines itself as a protectorate of the United, of the United States, this would be utterly unacceptable to China so that though it has no interest or desire to invade Taiwan, it will, may feel itself forced to. And then, I mean, in other words, we're living in a situation where American policy is such that it's, we feel there's a, a great urgency about bringing attention to this and trying to deter the American people from accepting the view that it's our business to to go to war, especially a war. 
John, you were saying China has no intention of invading Taiwan. Have you got evidence of that, or is that just your opinion? Of course, it's just my opinion, but there's no evidence that it does want to invade. This is just made up. Made up by by whom? Well, Biden especially. I, I don't mean Biden personally, but his he is um, taking very seriously the neoconservative foreign policy, which is that the United States should be the single force, the single power in the world. And this is a foreign policy that is dictated by the transnational corporations because that makes it their business very simple if, if they can just deal with one government about all the matters over the planet. It's not good for the American people. It's, it has all kinds of problems, but right now it is our foreign policy. So it's about making profit or something? This foreign policy was the one of the neoconservatives and 9-11 was the occasion that gave them power. So they have been running American policy since then. So this makes China the number one enemy. And we have announced that very explicitly. And if China is our enemy, then we want to weaken it. And... Uh, any speculations? The New York Times article that I saw that sort of set the tone of present policy acknowledged that it was pure speculation. But they said, because Russia is getting away with what it invading Ukraine, there's a danger that China will think it can get away with invading Taiwan. Okay. That's a very fragile basis on which to say this is Chinese policy. Chinese policy is that eventually Taiwan will want to become part of China. And they're willing to wait 100 years. But we want them to be put into, a, by we, I mean the people who are carrying out American foreign policy, want them to be put in a position where they have to choose between being extremely humiliated and um, militarily acting. And uh, everything I see fits that pattern. So that when I say China, China has no interest in starting something anytime in the near future. They don't want ever to have to reunite with Taiwan, Taiwan militarily. I mean, they don't, they don't want to conquer Taiwan. If I, I mean, of course, I can't read people's minds. There may be somebody who has such, some such ideas, but certainly they are not, no one speaks that way in China. And I don't think anyone thinks that way. The Chinese think we in the West are very impatient. If we want something, we go grab it. But that the Chinese way is holding fast to the goal and acting on it when the time is ripe. And the time would be ripe when... The Chinese have been quite active in the Pacific just of like They've had their envoys travelling, or they're still travelling around various countries in the Pacific trying to sell various uh, ways of living. So, 
Chinese foreign policy is very active. The number one step is to reunite everything that was once China. Then there's no interest in, in acquiring other possessions. But number two step is to play a role throughout the world. And so it is taking over. If, if third world countries want money for development, now they are turning to China for it. That's one of the reasons the U.S. is so angry with China. But Latin American countries have more, have more exchange with China than they do with the U.S., just economically speaking. That, that's a very new situation that is developing. I'm not suggesting China is not very active, but it's just not militarily active. John, all these all these issues appear to me to be a governance issue. So, is that is that right? Are we just having we can't understand how we should be governing the place? I think that the citizens of a country have some responsibility for what their government does. I, I was going to ask you about what do you think individuals should do. So you're sort of touching on it now. One of the profoundly discouraging things to me <laughs> is how very little interest the American public has in foreign policy. Of course, they get the newspapers, which are, of course, controlled by the same people the, who control the government, can persuade us to get very interested. So they, got, they have gotten a lots of interest in what's happening in Ukraine. But they have not provided us any information about how that came about. I mean, all they're saying is Ukraine good, Russia bad. And some American people who have not been told anything about what has been happening. I mean, our newspapers haven't told the Ameri American people what's going on in the Ukraine in previous decades or in the six-year period since there was a, a regime change engineered by the United States, of course, with the help of a lot of Ukrainians. So we don't know anything about the reasons for the invasion. And that's a sign of our not following what's happening in the world, except when the newspapers tell us to, and then we swallow what the newspapers tell us whole without without any ability to locate it historically or critically. Now, of course, there are thousands of Americans who have all kinds of information, much more than I do. I'm not trying to say nobody knows. But uh, except for specialists in relevant fields, extremely little knowledge. So from my point of view, number one is to persuade those who really care about peace and justice, and, and there are lots of Americans who do, that they need to devote some time to the actual study of what is happening and why it is happening and how it is happening. John, why aren't people doing that? Why don't they spend time thinking about what's happening in, in these sorts of issues? Well, 
I, I think that this situation has grown a great deal worse in the last generation since the universities, well, I'll, I'll give specific example. I went to the University of Chicago when I got out of the army, well, after World War II. And at that time, it prided itself on being an intellectual center. And it was resisting the move to being a collection of value-free academic disciplines. Now, academic disciplines do not encourage thinking. Martin Heidegger pointed that out, but it's quite obvious. It encourages a kind of research that gains additional information in narrowly defined areas. And as, as that mentality grows, the idea grows that uh, the only significant knowledge is the kind that can be tested in a scientific or quasi-scientific way. And that knowledge is only about repeatable phenomena. Science can't deal with unique phenomena. But history is composed of unique phenomena. So history is disappearing from our universities. It's uh, the universities, there's no place in the university to encourage people to think about what's happening in the world. I think when your schools don't help and when the churches collapse, there's really no institution that encourages thinking. So then, then what you believe is what the newspapers tell you to believe, or, or perhaps television more than newspapers. John, that's a really in interesting segue to my next question, which was about, do you think the narrative or the stories that we have that sustain us, is it, are, are stories important to us? And if so, why do you think, why is that? Oh, indeed. I, th I think we all live by stories. The Bible is, of course, a collection of stories. But uh, it's this, the scientific mindset tells us that stories have no... no un Sadly, I lost contact with John again. This is the second time in two efforts. I'll put a link to that first discussion that went for about 15 minutes in the show notes. Also, if you want to know more about John and the Living Earth Movement, you'll find a link to the website in the show notes. Climate Conversations is made possible through the support of the Mark Spencer published Climactic Collective. And it's just one of more than 20 podcasts making up that collective. More about the collective and the associated podcast can be found at climactic.fm. Music for Climate Conversations is from the Melbourne-based group Music for a Warming World. You can find a link to that group in the episode notes. Responsibility for Climate Conversations rests with me. But you could help with the questions. And if there is something specific that needs addressing, but the question is not being asked of whom it should be asked, please make a suggestion and send it to r.mclean7 at icloud.com. Earlier episodes of Climate Conversation can be found at the Climactic website. 
simply search for climactic.fm. Go to the Climate Conversations artwork, click on that, and there you will find all the other episodes. Beyond that, and in all this climate chaos, remember just a few things. Put your faith in genuine climate science. Also, action is the best antidote to despair, and that, I must add, is one of the drivers of this podcast. And remember, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. That ends this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company, and until we talk again, please take care.